um, wrestling and basketball, those teams uh, clash. It's this unwritten rule that if you're a wrestler, you have to kind of hate the, the weak, puny basketball players. If you're a basketball player, you're stuck up. And so it's an unwritten rule. Um, and, and so for me, it all came from my coach because he hated basketball more than anyone I know. I mean, we would, our school, there was the basketball gym and then the wrestling room was connected to it right off of the basketball gym. And every day in practice, we'd be doing our warm-ups to start off and, and you could hear through the wall, you could hear just hundreds of balls hitting the floor. And it sounded like, a stampede or like a thunderstorm in the, the gym. And our coach, every day in practice, would just be like, that's the worst sound in the world. And, uh, and he even has this, this phrase that he either put on a shirt or got from a shirt, I don't remember, that says, uh, he shared it with, it's hilarious, kind of shows his heart about basketball, is that the best sight of a basketball floor are wrestling mats from door to door. It's good stuff. And so, but it's funny that I would become a Chicago Bulls fan, and it happened in college. And I went to LCU, and, and because of that, I, I became friends with um, some, some people from Chicago who are diehard Bulls fans. And, and this was during the time when they were really good, and um, they uh, were a couple years ago when they were really competing, and they were uh, kind of the best competition for the Miami Heat, if you follow basketball at all. And uh, mostly because of Derrick Rose, the league MVP, and he kind of carried them uh, most of the way. And uh, the, the worst thing, the worst thing happened a couple years ago for Chicago Bulls fans nationwide. Derrick Rose injured himself and tore his meniscus. Ugh! And as he fell, every heart of, of every Chicago Bulls fans uh, dropped with him. And they were crushed, and it was just kind of the season. It wasn't over. There was still hope, but it wasn't going to be the same without Derrick Rose. No way. Without the, the league MVP, MVP carrying them. And so it was kind of this, this, this feeling of just kind of wanting the season to, to get over and him to heal and, and recuperate and get ready for next season. Okay? And there was even this, this, uh, these Adidas commercials that would come out, and I mean, Chicago was getting excited. Right, because there's this Adidas commercials coming out with with uh, with him shooting and lifting weights and getting ready, and there's this this heart bass bumping music that really would get you going. It's like, get ready, Chicago, he's coming back, and it's exciting stuff. And uh, he finally, the next season begins, and he's playing, and tip off uh, starts, and the season's underway, and a couple games in, uh, it happens again, and he re-injures himself. And everyone, I, just kind of, I think he should just kind of retire and give up. But everyone, I mean, the Chicago Bulls fans, if you're real diehard, you're still holding out for hope that he's going to return. And it's just this, this and see some head shaking. And yeah, it's just this kind of this feeling of like, get ready, Chicago. He's coming back. Now, in no way, in no way am I saying that Derrick Rose is, is similar to Jesus Christ, okay? We all know that was Michael Jordan. But in no way am I saying that. But I am saying that with chapter 23, with Jesus' whole ministry, there was one who came before him. It was John the Baptist. And that, John the Baptist, is the Adidas commercial to Jesus Christ. He's the one that's paving the way. He's the screen before the movie telling you to silence your phone. He's the primer before the pain. He's the pregame show to the Super Bowl. He's Buddy the Elf shouting, Santa's coming to town! Okay, He's the one that's going to teach everyone and lead everyone toward Jesus. Okay, and then a few pages in, Jesus enters the scene. And with this chapter, I want to outline this chapter real quickly in three ways. Uh, outline Jesus' life in three ways. The first one, the first thing that happens is he gets baptized by John. Jesus goes to John and gets baptized. 
When Jesus first came to John to get baptized, John was confused. It threw him in a quandary to wonder why Jesus, the one that he was teaching about and leading other people to, would come to him to get baptized. It, it baffled him. And Jesus' response, Jesus' response on page 322, the top of it, he says, Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. This, this righteousness is the quality of life for those who were to be baptized by John. And by doing so, by Jesus being baptized, he was proclaiming God's claim upon his life. I want to say that again. By doing so, he was proclaiming God's claim upon his life, which is the ultimate form of holiness. The second part, after he was baptized, the second part is that Jesus was then brought to the desert, right after. He was brought to the desert for a period to be tempted. Most of you can know the situations and, and times and locations and circumstances which you are most susceptible to being tempted, to fall into temptation, so you'll stay away from that. Now, I've been to a desert. It's not fun. Trust me, you think you have some hard times with not eating food. You'd be really tempted in the desert to eat some food. Now, he was tempted in every way. It's interesting to note, though, that as, as soon as Christ was baptized, and he, he then, uh, as soon as he was baptized, right after, he then grabs his, he grabs his sunscreen and his walking stick, and he heads to the desert to get tempted. And it's interesting to us to think that that's what follows his baptism, temptation. You see, we rejoice in baptism, and rightly so, we should. I mean, the idea that someone would dedicate their life to the will of Jesus Christ and make a public statement that they're giving over their entire life to the will and calling of, of, of Jesus Christ to make, him, to make him their Lord. And through doing so, receiving eternal life, that is an absolute reason to celebrate baptism. However, the work isn't done there. That's just the beginning. The work is just starting. Baptism does not mean that you're safe forever from temptation. And that is represented in the fact that Christ was baptized by John and then led into the desert to be tempted to walk among the cacti, the, cac- the cactuses, the cacti. The third part, anyway, the third part of Jesus' life. So he was baptized by John, he was brought into the desert, then he is ready to begin his ministry. He begins ministry, okay? And Jesus begins by heading to Galilee, which is, uh, which is where he lived, and he, he made a living, and he worked there. And so, more specifically, he moved to the town of Capernaum, um, which was right off of the Sea of Galilee. It was not a huge area of land. It was probably around 50 miles wide. But it was still a thriving location. Because of this, Galilee was highly populated. It had around, um, it had around uh, Josephus tells us that uh, there was around a little over 200 villages, and none of which had less than 15,000 people living in them. So this is a highly, this is a dense area, highly populated, and a perfect place, an ideal place for Jesus to go to begin his ministry. I mean, it's the same kind of principle why Mount Pulaski doesn't have a Chick-fil-A. It's because, because it's, I mean, you're not going to put a business where a place isn't going to be booming and growing. And so, and I, I mean, I think we'd pull from Lincoln and Dick, never mind, that's a different story. But it's the same kind of idea, that he wants to go someplace where he's going to, his, his good news is going to spread rapidly. And strongly. And so, uh, and so with that, uh, he, he, moves to, he moves to Galilee. And this is where he begins his ministry, but it's not where he stays. 
okay? He moves throughout Israel, performing many miracles, healing the broken and the sick, feeding the hungry, uh, baptizing several, and calling, in this chapter, calling his first disciples, Okay? And I, I believe that with, uh, with Jesus' ministry that a lot of churches going through the story, either today or in the past or in the future, I believe a lot of the sermons are going to kind of focus on a lot more of the details of Jesus' ministry than I plan to today. And today I want to kind of f- uh, focus, now that we have the outline of the chapter, I kind of want to focus on uh, John the Baptist, the one who came before him, the one who paved the way for the Savior to enter the scene. And so we're going to do this by looking at three uh, big phrases that John says throughout this chapter. The first one that he says, John's words, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. John's ministry consisted of pointing everything back to Jesus. When questioned by the Jewish leaders of who are you, he would say, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. I wish I would have thought of that when I was in elementary school. Just when people are like, hey, what's your name, little buddy? I'm the voice of one calling in the wilderness. So I'll probably, I might actually just start doing that from now on. Um, but what if we had that same purpose? What if we all had that same response? That you and I are but one voice calling out, make straight the way of the Lord. If each of us had but one voice pointing everything and everyone back to Jesus, I fully believe that would cause an avalanche upon the mountain of Pulaski. This town would be transformed to a place where eventually this town is pointing and bringing every other town back to Jesus, even Chestnut. But it starts here. So, how in your life are you pointing toward Jesus? Is it in your families? That when you feel like you're losing control and influence over your children, are you still pointing them back toward Jesus? Is it at sporting events that when that ref makes bad call after bad call, do you remember grace and point the other eccentric fans cheering for your team back toward Jesus? Is it online that when you see a Facebook official friend crying out for help and someone to just listen, do you grab their hand and say, and point them back to Jesus? In what direction is your life pointing Not that you're directing yourself, but how is your life directing others? Our goal in this life should be to bring glory to God with everything that we have. Amen? So the next question is, well, how do we do this? How do we we point? How do we point others to Christ without making them feel like we're throwing a Bible in their face? And I'm not just going to feed you a line about just go and be love, and that's great, and I I truly believe that, but but how does that, what does that look like? How does that practically make sense? Luckily, we've been given a great resource into this disciple-making process called the Bible. Um, For us this year, it's called the story. And so with that, in this chapter, Christ's ministry was all about this disciple-making process. And here's how he did it. He did this, and I'm going to share it by his his three phrases. The first one, and the first step of the disciple-making process is come and see. Sometimes, those of us who have been going to church our whole lives, we, we can get a little offended, say, if, if someone comes to church not dressed to the standards that we have set in our mind for them to be dressed. Jesus' first words to his disciples were not, hey, come to church and be a fully mature disciple on your first day. It was, come and see. Come and check it out. Come and see what I am. Come and see what, what this is all about. 
The second thing, once you've got them to that point where they're just coming to see, they're just coming to check it out. The second thing he says is, come and follow. This idea that we, we grab the hand of our brothers and sisters who are hurting, who are broken, who are slipping away from the faith, and rather than condemn them, which Christians are so good at, and make them fall away from the church and kick them out of our lives, help them, walk them through their junk. Continue to help them grow and not make them feel like a failure and only that they've fallen short because you know what? We all do. And at that time when they get there to to where they're ready to follow and they're ready to know what's more, then you say, as Jesus did, come and die. Come and lay down your life. Come and die. When his disciples are at that point where they're ready for more of what Jesus is, is, is telling them, when they're ready for that next step, ready to, for more of this life, then he says, come and die. You don't start with come and die, or the church is never going to grow, and there's never going to be new disciples. The second thing that John says, the second phrase, he says, he is the one who comes after me. The straps of whose sandals, I am unworthy, I am, I am unworthy, I am, nope, sorry, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. I think it's hilarious. He doesn't even say straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to wear. He says untie, to even take off. He recognizes and shouts out for the leaders to listen to him and hear him say, the ones who have been given him such high credit, the one who they may call the next Elijah, the one who they think can save souls, to hear him say, I am not, he's not even worthy to take the lowest position a man can possibly take and to become Jesus' slave and remove his sandals. Ah, but Jesus did say that John was the greatest of all the prophets. So how can a man who is who's supposed to be the greatest of all prophets consider himself unworthy of the lowest position a man can possibly take? See, when we place ourselves before the reality of who Christ truly is, we realize how truly unworthy we are in his presence. A professor of mine once told me that the closer and closer I get to knowing who Jesus is, the more I realize how far I have yet to go. But that's the beauty of grace. That's the beauty of the cross. The thought that the God would come down here and walk among people who are so rotten and, and, and filthy and, and guilt and, and, and he would sacrifice his flesh and his blood and his bones and his entire body, although capable of the unimaginable, so that maybe one day, the very few people would accept him as their Lord and Savior, and the even fewer would dare to give their whole lives to point everything back to him. I was in, uh, I was in third grade. I might have been in fourth or fifth, I don't really remember. But I was in third grade because I remember we were in the old house. I'm from Ankeny, Iowa, and I, uh, I, I grew up in, in two different houses. In elementary, we had the, the old house is what we call it. And uh, I remember... Um, in my backyard, we had the house that was right on the line of where elementary school split. And so I went to a, a different school than my friends who lived in the yards behind us. And so um, I remember if I'm facing my, uh, my, my house, I'm looking at the backyard. To, to our left is a long chain link fence, and then the back is a wooden fence, and then the other one's a chain link. Our, our yard was like, was 
kind of in fenced by the other fences, so it worked out well for us. And uh, the wooden fence and the chain link fence, they met at this like strip of, of five feet of, or so of diagonally placed chain link fence. And I had a good friend who lived uh, kitty corner across the, whatever, across the way to, to us. Okay? His name was Sergey. And we would often, uh, I'd often go over to his house and we'd play N64, Zelda, of course. We'd come over to my house and we'd do nothing. My house was super boring. I don't know what we did. We probably watched Wishbone or Dragon Ball Z or something. And uh, so, but we'd spend a lot of time outside in the yard. We'd play catch with football, baseball, whatever we could find, sticks. And sometimes we wouldn't even go over to each other's yards. We'd just throw it over the fence. And so that was fun. And there was a time, there was a time where we decided in our, our third grade minds, it's genius, third grade minds, to, to take apart the fence. Nothing wrong with that, right? We just thought, hey, let's just take apart this fence so we don't have to keep jumping it because we were getting tired of climbing it all the time and worrying about cutting our wrists on the top of the fence, and that's a real concern, okay? So we thought, let's take it apart, and this is the part that blew my dad's mind. This is the part that blew my dad's mind. We started taking it apart with our bare hands, okay? And so we were like, we had no idea what we were going to do with the poles. We were like, this is awesome, and so we started undoing it, unwinding it, and uh, all of a sudden, we get about halfway through, and I hear this voice from heaven, which uh, turned out to be my dad at the back door, yell out, Jared, get in this house! And I remember being terrified. I was like, okay, see you, Sergey." And from there, and I remember the next thing was being in my, my, my yard, being in the, uh, not my yard, being in my, my, my room, looking out the back window. And so between there, I just kind of blanked out. I don't know what happened. I remember I was grounded, and I'm looking out my back window, and I remember seeing my dad... He, was, he just came home from work, and I remember him sitting on his toolbox with some tools, and he's putting together the fence himself. Now, I couldn't have done anything, but I remember looking out my window and thinking, I should be doing that. That's my fault I disappointed my father. I should be the one to have to put that back together. But that's the beauty of the cross. That's the beauty of grace. It doesn't make sense. It's not fair. We don't deserve it. But he still hung upon it nonetheless. As the greatest prophet who ever lived, I think John had one of the better understandings of who Jesus was. And he says it in his third phrase, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. What if that was what our lives said? That the only reason you and I do anything is that he might be revealed. That the reason we adopt is that he might be revealed. That the reason I'm a foster parent is that he might be revealed. That the reason I pray with my children at night is that he might be revealed. That the reason I, I go to school, that I buy groceries, I donate blood, I dress a certain way, I sacrifice sports practices, I volunteer in children's, I run a 5K, I take a student out to eat, I have a Twitter account, is that he might be revealed. So what in your life isn't revealing who Christ is? In almost every account of this story, the Gospels preface Jesus' ministry with the story of John the Baptist. And why? I mean, if Jesus is king and he's the one we're supposed to be following, why is John's story so important? And he's not important to this story because of who he was, but because of what his message was for the world. His message was one of repentance. Not just a repentance to make us feel better or even so we can get into heaven, but his message of repentance was one of complete freedom that only comes with a life with Christ. 
a message of repentance that when we come to that vulnerable place in life and, and we're broken and hope seems lost and nothing good can ever come from who we are, that our only response can be nothing else than to forever turn our lives over to the will and calling of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, so that his spirit can begin a good work in us. And from there, we can start pointing everyone else back to him. That's his message of repentance. Because without a message of repentance, this world cannot hear the good news, and they have no chance to enter the kingdom of heaven. And now that the stage is set, now the stage is set, and John has said his words, he's paved the way for Jesus to enter the scene. And so my final question for us this morning is, what's your message? What's your message that the world is going to hear? Get ready, Chicago. He's coming back. Let's stand as we sing this morning. Bless the Lord.